I remember when I first became a Christian at 16 years old. Now, I had been baptized and become a member of the church a few years before that, but I came to realize that while that was the case, while I joined the church, I had never truly been born again. And when I heard a preacher share his personal testimony of being a member of a church, having been baptized for, and, and being a part of the church for many years, and yet realizing he was not truly a Christian. His life had not been changed. He was not a new creation in Christ. As he shared that testimony, I realized he was describing me. He was describing my life. When I finally came to that point and turned from my sins and put my faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, I mean, everything changed. It's like the light came on, the, the burden of guilt lifted from my heart and from my soul, and I indeed became a new creation in Christ. And I had such a freedom from sin, such a joy in the Lord, and such a desire to serve the Lord, to walk in fellowship with Him, that I just thought, man, this is this is the life, and this is the way it's going to be always. Well, that's what I thought at the time. But if you are a Christian, have been a Christian for any length of time, you realize that that opening experience, those, those opening days, and sometimes even weeks and months of, of victory in Christ and great joy and everything, doesn't always last. It, it's not quite always the same. I think you understand what I'm talking about. And that's the way it is in other areas of life as well. Perhaps in a personal relationship with another person, especially a, a spouse, right? Those opening days of, of romance and just couldn't wait to be with them and, and hated to be apart from them. You've been married now maybe for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 or so years. It's probably not always the same as it was in those opening days that's life and that's really in large part what we see in psalm 126 the psalmist is describing what had been his experience and the experience of the people of god and yet it had waned uh, there was a need for a renewal if you will and so he prays for the lord to do a new work psalm 126 Follow with me as I read these six verses. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O oh Lord, like streams in the Negeb, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This morning, as you would anticipate, there are three points that I want to share from this psalm, three things there. They're a little different 
Each point is really the title to a, a song. One, a, the first, a popular song, and the second two are hymns. The first point is, those were the days. Those were the days. The second is, revive us again. And the third is, bringing in the sheaves. First of all, consider with me, those were the days. Listen again to those opening verses. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Do you you catch the past tense there? When the Lord restored, right? That's past tense. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. We see that God had done something on behalf of his people, but it's in the past tense. And there was great joy. Do you, do you catch that emotion, that great joy that came to the people? We were like those who dream. When I read those first verses, I can't help but think of this song that, was, that I first heard back in the 1960s by Mary Hopkins. Uh, she recorded it. Those were the days, my friend, we thought they'd never end. Some of you remember that song. Um, you're as old or older than I am, and you can remember that song. Israel had experienced something, some kind of great deliverance, great restoration of their fortunes. Many commentators believe that what the psalmist is referring to was the return from captivity in Babylon. Some of you know that in judgment or in discipline upon his people, God sent Judah into captivity in Babylon. Uh, They were there for 70 years to discipline them for their waywardness, for their idolatry again and again and again. God had been patient with Israel. He had blessed them and they would sin and they would repent and he would bless them again. And, And finally, in order to get rid of this rampant idolatry and wickedness, he sent them into captivity. But after 70 years... They returned. They, a remnant left Babylon and returned to, to Judah and specifically to Jerusalem. It had been a dark time, but now they were free. Now they were back home. Oh, what a great revival that was. It was truly a mountaintop experience. But as we know, mountaintop experiences don't last forever. You see, this was in the past. This experience had happened, but now there's a prayer. Basically, Lord, revive us again. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. We see that in verse 4. So we're reminded that these kinds of experiences don't last. Again, it, it may be a relationship. Sometimes we start a new job just so excited about this new opportunity. It's just, it's our dream job maybe. And we just, we've been looking forward to this and we just love all the people we work with and and it just couldn't be better for a while. But like everything, jobs lose their newness. The excitement sometimes wears off and sometimes we find out that, hey, we're working with 
people, right? And people can be problems, right? And so the job loses its luster. Or maybe it's a church. Maybe we have come into a new church, what is new for us. And man, this is, this is a great church. The fellowship is great. The preaching is great. Everything is great for a while. But then we find out, hey, wait a minute. I'm going to church with sinners. These people aren't like me. They've got problems. And that preacher got problems anyway whatever it is it could be a job it could be a church situation it could be whatever these things often don't last that is the excitement the joy that we first experience not that it can't be renewed but it just isn't the same James Boyce lists four joys that are commonly lost by Christians during our walk with the Lord. The first is the joy of salvation, which I've already referred to in my own personal testimony. Especially if you came to Christ later in life or were living for a time far from the Lord and then you become a believer in Christ, it is just, the the difference is just so dramatic that you are on the mountaintop you are on top of the world for a while right but that joy is not permanent I'm not saying that you lose it altogether but it's not quite the same after struggling with sin for a while another joy that is lost is the joy of spiritual victory right we, we discover, even as Christians, that we still have remaining sin. And oftentimes we have a particular sin or two or more that, that are particularly troubling to us. Ones we have the most difficulty with. And then we get victory over a sin. We, we, we no longer are played by that in the same way. And we think, man, this is it. This is it. I'm now on a new level of the Christian life from which I will never depart. And we think that for a while until we discover another (laughs) challenging, plaguing sin that we can't seem to get rid of. The joy of spiritual victory is something that needs to be renewed again and again throughout the Christian life. There is the joy of Christian fellowship, which I've already referred to. Often that's involved in a church fellowship or some other small group. We discover that... Just like us, we're living with sinners. And sinners sin. And sometimes they sin against us. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes not so much. But still, it's a challenge. And then there can be the joy of a new work for God, a new ministry, a new project, uh, a new opportunity to serve the Lord, which, which is great for a while. The point is this. These are just a few examples of how we can find ourselves longing for something new, longing for a renewal of that joy that we had at one time, thinking those were the days. But that leads us to the second phrase, the second longing, if you will, 
It's really a prayer. Revive us again. Lord, revive us again. This is how the psalmist expresses it. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, let me just explain what that Negev is all about. Um, This is a desert area south of Palestine, south of the Promised Land. And it was an arid place. Um, It was a dry place parched waterless area and so you would have there would be gullies in there that had once been streams but because of the nature of that climate they were just dry parched gullies the psalmist is saying essentially that's how i feel that's what my life feels like right now lord restore our fortunes like streams in the negev because When there would be a rain up in the highlands north of the Negev, the water would run down and would fill those gullies. And once again, they would be life-giving streams. And that's what he wanted for his life. Lord, do it again. Do it again. Perhaps what the psalmist is referring to in this need to have this renewal of joy and everything is the fact that when the people returned from captivity in Babylon, they had the hard task now of resettling the land, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls. And over time, there were enemies who didn't want them to do that. There were struggles. It was work. It was hard work. And they began to lose the joy that they had initially in doing that. We know that there was a lag in their Spiritual fervor. If you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai, what you find is that the people started out well, but over time they began to marry some of the pagan people in the land, which God had forbidden. They began to lessen their commitment to the Lord and back off on obeying some of His commandments. The rebuilding of the temple, which they had started with such enthusiasm because of opposition, they had stopped. They had become comfortable after a while, taking care of their own homes, their own lives, until Haggai rebuked them and stirred them once again to begin rebuilding the temple. And so what happened was life, life got in the way of their excitement, their joy, their spiritual vigor and enthusiasm. They needed, as the psalmist expresses, they needed renewal. They needed revival in their hearts and in their lives. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the day. Do another, a new work in us. Give us back our passion, our enthusiasm, and our joy. The poet Robert Browning wrote this, Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? What does that mean? That means that in life, especially in the Christian life, we should always be pushing forward. We should always be straining forward and the ultimate fulfillment of our great longings and desires will not be met in this life. That's what heaven is for. In other words, our great longings, 
can never be fully satisfied in this life. And our testimony, our attitude, our approach to the Christian life should be that of the Apostle Paul's. If you want to take the time, Philippians chapter 3, a very familiar passage. Philippians 3, I'm going to begin reading in the middle of verse 4. Paul writes this. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, that is, that I have not arrived. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Rather than continually looking back to the past, a past experience of salvation or victory over sin or whatever it may be. Rather than looking back with longing, we should be seeking in the present to press on toward the future, to press on for the Lord to continue restoring our our fortunes. That is, reviving our hearts, our lives again, bringing us to greater levels of knowing the Lord, loving the Lord, following the Lord. Don't get stuck in the past. Revive us again. We are all continually in need of personal as well as corporate revival. And we can have confidence that the Lord will hear our prayer for revival. That he will hear our prayer to restore our fortunes. And he will answer. And that leads us to the third point. Bringing in the sheaves. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Verses 5 and 6 are a promise that faithfulness will result in reward. God will reward 
the faithfulness of his people. And the psalmist expresses it in, in farming terms. The people to whom he was writing, the people among whom he lived, were by and large farmers. They lived in agricultural context. They understood this. And he says, a lot of times you're going to go out and you're going to sow with tears. Why? Because it's hard. Everything's against you. The weather's against you. The land's against you. The thorns and the thistles are against you. Satan is against you. So you're going to have tears. It's not going to be an easy road. And yet, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. That's a word for us. Living Christian life involves tears. Sometimes they are actual physical tears. Sometimes they're just the tears of our hearts. As we struggle with remaining sin in our lives, as we grieve over broken fellowship with others, as we realize that we are falling short, our church is falling short, our world is falling short of being what God created us to be and intends us to be, we can't help but sorrow over that. We can't help but grieve over that. We can't help but mourn the loss of loved ones who we lose in the battle. But God in His grace is faithful. He promises there will be a harvest. There will be a reaping. There will be a reward for our label. Our labor. God is faithful to give us many victories along the way, some little, some big. But our greatest victory will always be in the future until the Lord Jesus returns. The Apostle Paul writes about our need for sowing and reaping continually in Galatians 6. Galatians 6, 7 through 9, he writes this, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. For the one who sows of the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't give up. Keep sowing. Keep sowing, keep loving, keep learning. Stay in the Word, stay in prayer, stay in fellowship with God's people. Keep sowing, keep serving. The Apostle Paul understands, understood that ultimately, as great as walking with Christ is in this life, that's not our ultimate reward. So he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There was a time when I was a younger Christian that I didn't fully appreciate that statement. Because, man, being a Christian, especially in those new days, those early days, it was so exciting, it was so great that I thought, even if there is no heaven, this is good. This is, I mean, what more can I ask for? But as I've matured a little bit, and realize not how much closer I've gotten to being Christ-like, but how much further away I feel, I realize what Paul is saying. The ultimate fulfillment 
of being like Jesus, being conformed to his image, will never be fully accomplished in this life. So at the end of that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this, beginning in verse 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's Paul's term for believers who who have died. He calls it sleep. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The one who goes out sowing, weeping, sowing precious seed, shall without a doubt come again, bringing his or her sheaves with him. With joy, there is a reward, a great reward to come. So the Apostle Paul could say at the end of his life, as we read in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The reward is promised. It is coming. It is sure. We need to be steadfast we need to be abounding in the work of the lord we need to look to the reward as the writer of hebrews reminded us in hebrews 11 that's what abraham did that's what moses did that's what the great heroes of the faith did they looked to the reward pastor and author tim keller shares this illustration imagine you have two women of the same age the same socioeconomic status the same educational level, and even the same temperament. You hire both of them and say to each, you are part of an assembly line, and I want you to put part A into slot B, and then hand what you have assembled to someone else. I want you to do that over and over for eight hours a day. You put them in identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, and ventilation. You give them the very same number of breaks in a day. It is very boring work. Their conditions are the same in every way except for one difference you tell the first woman that at the end of the year you will pay her thirty thousand dollars and you tell the second woman that at the end of the year you will pay her 30 million after a couple of weeks the first one will be saying isn't this tedious isn't it driving you insane aren't you thinking about quitting and the second one will say no This is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. What's going on? You have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances 
in radically different ways. What makes the difference? It's their expectation of the future, of the reward. He adds this. This illustration is not intended to say that all we need is a good income. All right? That's not the point. It does, however, show that what we believe about our future completely controls how we are experiencing our present. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures. God has done great things in the past for us as people. But those things need to be renewed. But most of all, we need to look to the future. We need to, to be motivated by that great promise that there is a reward, a harvest coming. We can sow in tears joyfully because we know that that day is coming. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It was so good. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. But, O Lord, restore our fortunes. Like streams in the Negev, we're dry. Dry as dust. Well, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are a great and a gracious God. Lord, you have been so merciful to us. You have indeed blessed us with showers, showers of blessings. But, oh, Lord, we desire even greater. Mercy drops, Lord, around us, have fallen and are falling. But, Lord, it's for the showers in the present and especially in the future that we plead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.